Hey there and welcome back to Crypto Clarified. This is the podcast series where we come together to discuss the most captivating headlines and trends from the crypto space. My name is Benjamin Dean and I am director in WisdomTree's digital assets team. And today I've got the pleasure of being joined by Lily Liu, who is co-founder of Anagram and the president of the management of the Solana Foundation. Social media shout outs to kick things off as always. Hit subscribe if you're on some kind of podcasting platform and share with your friends. WhatsApp's a great way to do it. Tell them to subscribe. Sharing is caring, folks. Sharing is caring. As always, you can find me at Benjamin Dean on the Bird app. And US listeners, check out wisdomtreeprime.com. You're going to be in for a surprise. On today's episode, we're going to be talking with Lily about her very interesting and entrepreneurial background. We're going to talk a bit about how distributed networks are changing the structures of economies globally. Super interesting. We're going to talk about scalability and why it's been an obstacle to so many networks in the past, how Solana tries to address that problem. And then, of course, the solutions that are out there. We will finish up, as always, with a look to the future, because if there's one thing we love doing on the show more than clarifying crypto, it's thinking about the future. Before we begin, though, I have to do the shout out. James, Sam, in compliance, don't hit the 30-second button, people. You can miss the best part of the show. Before I begin, I need to state the following. To clarify the views and opinions expressed in this podcast, there's a wisdom tree and anagram. The Solana Foundation is subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation offer a solicitation to buy or sell any securities and relies upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember, past performance is no indication of future results. I'm getting so good at that now. It just runs off the tongue. Let's move to the fun stuff. Lily, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me. And I think you did that within 30 seconds as well. So that's nice. Oh, well, yeah, you get a bit of practice with this and it's super important and interesting. So you've got to do it correctly. Uh, Lily, you've got a very interesting background. I know at the moment you're coming to us from Taiwan. Mm -hmm. uh, you're there for, I assume, conferences or for work. Uh, but usually when we kick off these episodes, uh, we like to ask guests a bit about their background, how they got involved in the space and, and why they're working on what they are now. Let me just run lists through your, your background quickly. Yeah, um, so I uh, took an interest to uh, Chinese history, modern Chinese history, quite early in life. Um, I kind of chanced upon this book called Life and Death of Shanghai when I was nine. Um, I wouldn't say that that would be necessarily nine-year-old uh, typical reading, um, but uh, uh, I read it and I was fascinated by it um, because it's a crazy story, right? Uh, but it also happened to be reality. Um, and then a few, a few years later, when I traveled from mainland China to Shanghai, which there's just such a juxtaposition of 1990s Shanghai and what I'd read about in the 60s and the 70s. And that really captivated me because I just couldn't make sense of it, right? Um, how could this relatively consistent culture, culture that I'm from, um, sort of be at these two extremes in such a short amount of, not just the same amount of time, but like literally the same human beings uh, were the practitioners of the terror of the 60s and then this kind of blossoming of the 90s. Uh, and, you know, then and even now, I just really wanted to understand that. Um, and uh, I'm not sure that I fully do. Um, I don't, I'm not sure that many people fully do. Uh, but that was what sparked kind of an early interest in political economy, right? How do these things work? Um, why, right? 
Uh, and uh, to me, those have always been continued to be interesting questions. And ultimately, that also led me down uh, that kind of continued line of inquiry led me into crypto starting about 10 years ago. Super interesting. I remember living in, in Shanghai. And uh, when you see the images of Pudong between like the 60s and the 90s, uh, it's completely changed. I mean, if you ever want an indication about how places, economies uh, can can shift very quickly, mm -hmm. uh, go and check that out, right? It's, it's. I mean, it certainly marked me, but it sounds like it also marked you as well. In a, in a totally. Similar one. Totally. Yeah. Um, I think it, I think we kind of generally have this kind of sense that um, that the present is at steady state and in status quo, and that we expect change to be incremental or change to be linear or something like that. When in fact, sort of very punctuated events are more are more frequent than uh, we might assume or like to assume, and volatility is um, more present um, than uh, than we think it might be or should be. Uh, and that's something that I think, um, you know, crypto introduces that kind of element of, uh, of volatility um, into supposedly sort of stable modern life. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, you know, it's uh, things like this dramatic transformation that's happened in many places in East Asia in the span of one generation that I think um, uh, really demonstrate uh, how much things can change governance wise, socially, uh, and how quickly new paradigms can actually take place. Um, so in that sense, I think that what we're doing at crypto is not actually that fast and not actually that crazy. <laughs> I'm glad someone thinks that. It's, you know, the thing that gets me is that essentially open, well, they're distributed databases, open source software, and the rate at which those technologies can spread when uh, the cell phones everywhere, internet connectivity is not quite universal now, but it's, it's not far off. Uh, the, the rate of potential change, uh, I always try and impart that when we do client meetings with the, uh, the, uh, the adoption curve graph where you watch mm -hmm. like it took 50 years for automotives and refrigerators to, to go, not even globally. Mm -hmm. And then it only takes five to 10 years for these distributed networks to go global mm -hmm. uh, to the point where, I mean... Yeah, if it, yeah, where you're sitting right now is very interesting for that reason. There's always been a big uh, crypto community in in Taipei, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's not obvious to folks who who aren't out there that the rate of change, the activity that's occurring, but you can yeah. see it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yet another I mean guest as well. Well, I was going to say you're yet another guest who's got a background in political economy. Uh, which is <laughs> a, not a coincidence. It's not. We that happens mm -hmm. all the time. There's got to mm -hmm. be something there about that kind of background where you can join the dots to to see, yeah. as you said just before, like the why. Yeah, uh, is the change occurring? Um, because to me, I think um, what crypto proposes. I think when people look at something like Bitcoin, um, there's various kind of ways that people sort of intuitively get it, right? I think that um, the broadest tent is to explain uh, Bitcoin as digital gold. And, uh, and that resonates with so many people because I think people very intuitively understand why uh, gold has value and not just its utilitarian form, its jewelry or whatever it might be or industrial use, but really just sort of as a store of value and also something which is globally sort of recognized as a store of value. So I think that's something that a lot of people get. Uh, and then, uh, but then, you know, there's only one chain where infrastructure gets to be the application, right? Meaning the infrastructure, which is, this global proof of work mining network with these big crazy computers around the world basically competing on this one function, right, day in and day out, uh, that itself being 
you know, the same thing as digital gold is kind of being the application as you will. Um, that kind of overlap, I think, you know, in the same way that there's only one metal, which is gold, only gold is gold. I think only Bitcoin gets to be digital gold. And then everything that comes after that is kind of infrastructure for applications, right? So the value proposition there, the reason for being, right, is uh, really quite different, right? Uh, with Bitcoin, uh, if no one ever builds any applications on Bitcoin, Bitcoin's still going to be fine, right? Now, arguably, if people are to be able to build uh, applications using Bitcoin, would that make Bitcoin even better, right? That's its own debate. Uh, but then certainly for everyone else, it has to be a network that supports an ecosystem of applications uh, and exactly sort of how uh, how much that's going to scale, right? But then, you know, that, that that starts to put you more in starting, start, that's kind of where it starts to veer towards Web3, distributed systems, decentralized infrastructure. Uh, and it's got to be useful for something beyond that token going from Lily to then and then back, right? Uh, and so Ethereum is the one that introduced that idea. Um, and then uh, I think, you know, it's incredibly exciting. Uh, but then uh, starting in 2017, when people actually really wanted to use it, then it started to present um, some challenges just in terms of usability at scale, uh, where if people tried to use it, like they would use their computers, and it started to feel like you're trying to do 2015, let's call it things, on your dial-up internet from 1995 and then therein kind of lied the rub right because people wanted to do all these things they got used to doing 20 years later uh but then they basically sort of were like well you know you've got a geocities website right and, <laughs> and so then it kind of kicked off this whole thing in 2017 2018 uh, okay um different consensus mechanisms how do you have something which is more performant uh, I think people have used all sorts of different uh, language um, uh, to uh, to describe it, um, but uh, I think it's really about you know throughput TPS, and so basically around that time um, uh, there was a lot of discussion: how can we do? How can we increase the performance, the throughput, scalability? Different kind of adjacent words used to describe it in order to to allow us to do those things. Um, and so there's lots of different approaches proposed, right? Um, you know, uh, roll-ups, off-chain uh, transaction, balance, all, all sorts of different things. And then there was Solana, whose proposition was um, actually kind of simple, but also novel at the time. Like, why don't we just keep everything on a single shard? And people are like, no, you can't do Like, how could that possibly be? Uh, and uh, and uh, Anatoly's proposition was, um, well, you know, what if we um, allowed some, you know, uh, basically parallel execution, proof of history, you know, different mechanisms uh, such that we could always sort of uh, potentially upgrade the network to be performing at the edge of hardware. Um, and that was a pretty novel thing um, and kind of worked out, right? So, uh, so that's uh, kind of, uh, you know, I think where we are, but, you know, to translate that into why it's important, uh, it's not just about a number of TPS, right? It's about um, how do you create an experience that can potentially, uh, you know, uh, provide a user experience which is competitive with what we are doing in Web2 today, right? Which is, to me, the simplest is like, we used to, uh, you know, separate through your dial-up modem and your 56K modem. And today we have broadband. And the difference between those two things, if we take, you know, one example we probably all know and love is Netflix um, also existed in the 90s. Um, they were mailing you DVDs, right? Yeah. Uh, so they were 
helping you watch movies, uh, but that's what they were doing when you had non, you know, less or non-performing internet. And then two decades later, they're streaming movies to you. So is that the same company? Is that the same application? In some ways, I suppose, but I would say like pretty materially different. Um, and so to me, that's really what the significance of so-called like TPS really is, right? It's not just a number. Um, it's, uh, it's the groundwork for a fundamentally different experience. Great. So that's a very good clarification there. We love clarifying on the show. That's why it's very quickly <laughs> clarified. Now, so let's unpack that even more for the listeners, because that's like a, a whirlwind tour of like a decade of software engineering and distributed network architecting. You've got Bitcoin, as you said, like it's Bitcoin. It's people think of it as like a store of value. We could debate whether that's true or not. That's fine. It does a very specific thing. Um, and then there are, <clears throat> there are limitations around it for technical reasons. You have Ethereum come along where people can do different things on it. Um, I think you're alluding to it, but when we were talking about something like Ethereum, it's, it's what activities are people doing on it essentially? Because that will help us then unpack the point around why scalability and throughput are obstacles potentially. Yeah. So like, um, what, what are people we're using it for? I know stable coins is a thing. Yeah, uh, but yeah. there might be other ones that, that you from where you sit see that might not yeah. be obvious. Um, well, I mean, there's um, the two kind of most, I guess, uh, most talked about use cases, most adopted use cases. There's DeFi summer, which was summer of 2020. Um, and uh, and that was really kicked off in earnest, I would say, by the advent of Uniswap and the ability to you know, take these coins and then uh, create kind of liquid markets around smart contracts. Right. Uh, but unlike trading on a an exchange, you would instead lock your liquidity into these pools, uh, and then you would have kind of you know locked capital that people would trade against, right? Um, and uh, but that was already you know usually more useful than just sending a token back and forth, um, which is some form of a payment. Um, and although we can talk about that in a second as well. Uh, and so that's the type of thing which was a massive step up for crypto, right? And really demonstrated entirely new things that you can really do in crypto with, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, not just uh, trading and liquidity pools, but then all the things you can build on top of that, money markets, um, uh, you know, and all sorts of financial products, composable financial products you can even build on top of that. And, you know, that's, you know, uh, there's been a lot of cool stuff there over the last few years. Um, and so that was pretty revolutionary. Um, but then uh, the critique is that, uh, you know, it's not terribly capital efficient because you've got to lock your capital in there, right? And uh, with yield farming, there's uh, only, you know, like truly long-term equilibrium, yield farming is not, at some point, the tokenomics start to uh, get a little bit challenging years into sort of a yield farming go-to-market type of strategy, right? Uh, and I think we've been seeing some of that uh, come to light over the last few years, right? And essentially all of that is uh, workaround and compensation for the fact that uh, that Ethereum main chain cannot support uh, the sort of more capital efficient way of doing things, which is to have an, uh, to have an order book, right? And be able to sort of um, bid ask and sort of live settle, uh, live kind of price discovery rather than locking your capital in. Uh, and so that's the type of thing that I think really actually in the early days before I got involved with Solana demonstrated how powerful something like throughput can be when you're talking about these types of use cases, right? Because Solana was able to um, support uh, an order book based uh, protocol. 
so you could actually have fully on-chain order book trading. Uh, and that was crazy at the time, right? This is probably beginning, uh, end of 2020, beginning of 2021, that you could do that, you know, fully on-chain. Uh, and so that was, you know, kind of the difference where, yes, it's all like on-chain trading, uh, but then the potential capital efficiency, right, the architecture of these potential DeFi systems is dramatically different. Uh, and I would say even when it comes to payments, which I think is like a little bit of the white whale of crypto, uh, people have been writing about it for ages and writing about sort of, you know, like competing with Visa. I mean, we were writing about, about Bitcoin back in like, you know, from the early days of Bitcoin, right? So payments, I think it really are like the white whale of crypto because it's so obvious yet we haven't been able to really do it yet uh, for numerous reasons. That's also something where, um, it has to be the case that that core transaction is you click a button and then the money gets from me to you in uh, for practically no cost in no time, right? It just has, that has to be the base case. Uh, and uh, so with all of the liquidity that you have in, for example, USDC and ERC-20 and so on and so forth, it's great for many things. But frankly, you know, paying $2 and waiting two minutes to have a click clear is just not something people are gonna wait for or pay for these days, right? Uh, and so um, so that to me is also something that throughput and performance gives you. Again, it's not really just a number, it's actually, I would say, what it does for you is it's the lack of numbers in terms of how much you're paying to make a transaction. Uh, and uh, and those are the types of things that uh, are just, you know, so like kind of today you log on the internet and you don't go through like the whole like doo-doo-doo-doo type of thing, dial in, it's just always on, right? Um, and uh, it's like having a lighted candle versus turning on a light switch. So that's just kind of what, what it's got to be is like the base case. Yeah, it's, I mean, that was really the, the big challenge that emerged. It, it became too popular in a way. And so you've got this tool that's designed to do a few things. And so folks go out there and try and use it for, as you say, like these decentralized finance apps, you've got these liquidity pools, you're trying to do payments. But the tool's not really in its final form or it's not designed to optimally conduct those activities. And so over time, then yeah. you have to almost like invent new tools or reimagine the tool in order to give the functionality that's required for people to do what they want. And uh, yeah. as you yeah. say, like on chain order books, for instance, I think that was one thing, but there's plenty more of them. Yeah. So. Can you run the audience quickly just through then, like in terms of the Solana network, throughput, that is to say the number of transactions that can be conducted within a certain amount of time, um, is, is kind of one of the, the reasons it was designed. Can you quickly run the listeners just through how folks thought about that or how it's designed in order to achieve that throughput, given all of the other kind of engineering and technical trade-offs that one has to make in order yeah. to, to allow that to happen? Um, yeah, and so um, so there's like a fairly uh, one of the the novel things um, that the uh, that the original technical team kind of came up with uh, is this concept of proof of history, right? And that was a way of um, using actually SHA-256, which is famously sort of known for all sorts of things, but within crypto as being the original hash function, uh, or being not just the original the hash function uh, that uh, Bitcoin uses, right? Although it was you know, absolutely developed and, and adopted uh, far before Bitcoin. Um, and so that is actually being run, not in terms of, you know, us doing proof of work, try to mine Bitcoin, but actually as an internal clock so that you could have 
um, a number of different machines sort of uh, be able to independently coordinate time or history with one another and therefore allow sort of parallel uh, processing at the execution of transactions uh, or processing of transactions. Uh, and then there's um, a predetermined leader system, right? So we know that Lily's gonna be determining this block, then it's gonna be doing the next one, and then validator three or four is gonna be doing the next one. And so you kind of have that pre-ordering. Uh, so you so because it's known ahead of time, then uh, you can uh, you know continue to have uh, pretty high throughput. So there's other stuff going on, right? But I would say in principle, there's um, the parallel kind of execution of transactions and using this kind of, um, I guess, independent way of uh, making sure that we're all sort of clocked, if you will, machine clocked at the same time uh, in order to out, uh, uh, in order to enable that sort of parallel execution within the same uh, within the same chain, rather than um, having parallel execution, if you will, being the form of L2s or rollups, which is currently sort of one of the hottest areas of, of exploration and innovation right now in the VM world. Um, rather than using having those things be as independent shards. And so uh, it's a pretty different architecture um, and a uh, number of other things that kind of went on with that uh, in order to kind of make this whole thing come together as like smart contracting platform. So listeners, I hope that what you're gathering from this is that scalability of this kind of infrastructure or digital infrastructure has been an issue over time because there's certain like state of the art things that you can and can't do at certain points in time. There are trade-offs you have to make in terms of designing and architecting systems. And over time, of course, knowledge and technology accrues and you're able to do new things uh, with, with different uh, technology. So what Lily's just done a great job of doing is explaining the Solana solution to the scalability problem. You also mentioned uh, layer two roll-ups on Ethereum, and that's a whole space that we unfortunately don't have time to go into, but other people have got different solutions and uh, there are trade-offs there. Could you just run the listeners through very quickly kind of the trade-off that you face uh, with the solution that you've brought out? And then also think a little bit about like how it's going to evolve in the future, because it's not a static, or as you said earlier in the episode, steady state, like it's going to change. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the one of the challenges with roll-ups is that um, you lose fungibility and composability between the L2s and then, for example, uh, the main chain, right? Um, and so if you take USDC, for example, um, when you take USDC from ERC-20 mainnet, ETH mainnet, uh, and use it on, let's call it Arbitrum or Optimism or something, uh, you have to go across the bridge and it's actually a different coin, right? Um, I would say loosely in the TradFi world, it's a little bit, you know, Lily's money market fund versus Ben's money market fund. Uh, they'll probably get you to more or less the same place, uh, but they're actually different things at the end of the day, even if they all get called USDC, right? Uh, and there's some kind of synthetic layer um, in the middle. And so what that means is that, um, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, who your broker, custodian, kind of issuer, whatever, of, let's call it a money market fund is, um, makes it a slightly different product. The same thing is true when you're using, you know, some array of L2s, even for basic things like USDC. Uh, and so in crypto, we call the composability, right? Uh, also, like, I guess it just means like, you know, the, the ability for these things to natively sort of uh, interact with one another. Um, and so with every kind of layer that you jump, right, uh, then yes, you can, the trade-off is fundamentally, uh, they all sort of 
uh, knit into the security, the economic security of ETH mainnet proof of stake with all the economic value and all of that kind of accrued underlying infrastructure. But then when you give up is, um, is you basically give up composability or said another way, what you take on is fragmentation, right? Uh, and so I think it's kind of an open question right now, how can that degree of fragmentation um, support a user experience, which is competitive with Web2? I think that really is kind of the, at the end of the road question. Uh, and, uh, and so amongst, you know, all of the technical innovation on the infrastructure, which is being done today between L2 innovation, you know, uh, sequencers, how to architect sequencers, ensure those are decentralized, right? Because with every additional sort of layer that you introduce in there, it becomes sort of a repeat of some of the similar questions that we've been contending with from the beginning, right? The trilemma of security, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, and decentralization and all this type of stuff. Um, and so, you know, for example, right now, there's now an emergent uh, conversation about how centralized or decentralized your sequencers, right? So we end up kind of having that same, uh, some form of that kind of trilemma debate with every additional layer that gets introduced. And I think maybe a couple of years from now, there may even be a need for layer threes, right? So on one hand, um, they uh, are, that's what you've got to do in the ETH and kind of the EVM world. I don't mean this critically at all. It's just, it just, you know, comes, it just ultimately a set of trade-offs uh, for, you know, what is incumbent, the network effects you're already taking on that have certain benefits, but also have certain costs, right? Uh, so that is, um, that in my mind is kind of the ultimate question. How, how can you provide a user experience for this kind of world of decentralized applications um, with all this underlying fragmentation? I don't know, open question, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. And as you say, tr trade-offs are involved. Uh, listeners will remember the term... Uh, composability from uh, the chat we had a few weeks ago with with sunny agrawal at, at osmosis mm -hmm. uh we covered that also in depth friends so, and colleagues yep. yeah sunny's great shout out to, uh, to sunny um they're, they're not easy problems to deal with but someone's got to work on them and uh bit by bit you know with the trade-offs that you've rightfully pointed out bit by bit things progress but that composability seems to be kind of one of the key elements from these distributed networks that as you say the, avoiding fragmentation uh, because as we know the financial system is extremely fragmented with lots of intermediaries and there might be a more efficient way in which to structure things maybe uh, but that you know time will tell but that that's an excellent segue then to think about the future so we uh, love to end these episodes thinking about the future from, from where you sit uh, you get to wear a lot of hats you're a very entrepreneurial person what are the Kind of areas that you've got your eye on that can be an extension of your point there around composability in solana but it could also just be broadly given the, the part of the world you're in right now and that the very interesting vantage point yeah. that you have across the space totally um and so you know for me uh what's been captivating about crypto from the beginning um and it took me a while to really even articulate it like this to myself um but what it does to sort of this assumed balance between different factors of production which has typically been characterized as capital and labor right so uh you know for the longest time and i would say even in most places today where capital is scarce labor is abundant uh and we've shifted that in certain you know industries certain parts of the world uh certain skill sets uh through education and so on and so forth uh, but then what crypto fundamentally does is, is it takes some of those factors of production and then makes them privately accessible to even a very small group of individuals, which was never before possible, right? Uh, and, uh, and what becomes so interesting about that is 
uh, it takes kind of that shift to that balance and kind of the, the political economy, if you will, between capital and labor and fundamentally kind of shakes it up. And uh, I think we're still discovering what exactly that means, right? Uh, but I think it has pretty uh, has pretty dramatic comp uh, implications for uh, for labor market access, right? Because you know, in principle, right now, uh, I can transact with potentially anyone in the world for maybe let's not call it goods, right? That's got to be physically settled, but at least services, uh, you know, some some service delivered with you know Ben's time or something like that, right? So that's pretty, and I can instantly sort of pay. Uh, you know, pay you in USCC or ETH or Bitcoin or whatever it might be. Uh, and that's uh, really powerful, right? That kind of tr truly peer-to-peer -peer type of uh, relationship that you can have, uh, which is fundamentally, you know, labor services uh, type of relationship, right? Uh, and so to me, you know, that's one of the biggest stories really around crypto. Um, and it's, uh, and it's, it, we talk about self-custody a lot, which typically means like I hold my keys, right? Uh, but, you know, the extension of that is you don't just self-custody your mnemonic, right? Really what you're self-custodying is um, control over your sort of factors of production and uh, how those are uh, contributed or not contributed um, into the world around you. And so that to me has really always been the biggest story um, long-term as to what's happening in crypto, right? It's kind of like this, like an ultimate form of, you know, people always talk about property rights and uh, and this is like a very, very literal form of property rights, uh, which is now sort of distilled down to the individual. Uh, and that to me is kind of the driving force behind what is possible here. And so even in these, you know, big 90% drawdown um, bear market cycles, if people ask me like, why are you still doing that, right? Why is this, why are you still doing this after your third bear market? Why are you not terribly perturbed and completely stressed out? Uh, and that's because of those fundamental sort of uh, things that it allows um, that I think uh, are um, are sort of withstand these crazy bear and bull market cycles. And uh, and at least I have conviction that um, that's something which is you know powerful enough to kind of be worth pursuing over time. So it reminds me that you mentioned the capital and labor dynamic there. I remember uh, the growth models in development economics and basically they sit there and say there's capital and labor. And then, you know, there's like this point above it that says like, and here's where the growth rate is. And I look at it and I go, so what's that Delta? Like, well, how do you explain like it's higher than the capital labor? Okay. And they go, well, that's technology. And we don't know how it fits into the model. We know that it increases kind of the productive capacity over time, but we, we didn't answer that. <laughs> and in a way what you just explained is kind of like that 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 the, it's not magic it's just like technological advances it can sometimes feel like magic but uh yep. the, what's fascinating here is like if you think about how economies evolved out of the industrial age and then kind of you know industrialization spreads in different parts of the world you still have like a kind of very fragmented set of systems because you didn't have the international or internet connectivity to join everything mm -hmm. together and what's like totally different here, and it's like straight out of the box, open source distributed, well, open source software distributed networks that are not by nature, but by implementation, they transcend boundaries in ways that kind of the, the, the previous systems weren't designed to do or didn't end up doing in a very efficient way. And if you can start seeing that, as you just explained, you, you can start also seeing how it completely can change the way in which economies are structured. I mean, at the top of the episode, we were talking about Shanghai and Pudong. 
see how things can change very quickly. Uh, I don't think everyone's fully wrapped their heads around the implications that, uh, that you've just outlined and, and yep. I've tried to outline a little bit as well. Yep. yep. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, especially right now, um, especially some of the narratives that have been, um, framed in particular over the last few weeks, right. Um, is focused on certain sort of, let's just call it more nefarious or, you know, whatever use cases that have always kind of been part of the narrative around cryptocurrency. Um, and, you know, I don't want to pretend they don't exist or anything like that. Uh, but on the flip side, right, new technologies to me are always really excited by sort of what new markets they open up, right? Uh, and what sort of new, by new markets, I mean, you know, people who are able to connect with people, um, whereas they were not previously able to, right? And to start to be able to transact with those folks, right? Classically, sort of the Uber, uh, using the mobile phone to connect drivers and riders in, a, in an instant, right, is being like, you know, very classic model of that. So that to me is really sort of the bigger story of what cryptocurrency enables, right, because it is this kind of fundamental base layer that allows really anyone to potentially economically transact with someone else for, uh, you know, for, you know, it, for services at the very least, right, which is, you know, the time that is so basic uh, to, I guess, what we do, right? So uh, that to me is um, the, the bigger narrative outside of uh, some of the things that have been sort of more, uh, more commonly talked about, especially recently. Oh yeah, for sure. You totally yeah. see it. I, <laughs> the listeners know from the other week when I was in Buenos Aires and they also know when I go to Istanbul, like mm -hmm. the, <laughs> if you could start seeing how the technology is used out there in the wild, um, yep. you, you can't oh, miss yeah. it. You can't miss oh, yeah. it once you go out there, but not everyone goes out uh, there. And I mean, uh, speaking of Istanbul, I was there in February as well. And exactly, it's very stark, right? Uh, how it is so much more intuitively useful for people in uh, more challenged economies than yeah. in economies where money works. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, so, you know, if you deal with, it doesn't have to be hyperinflation, like the really dramatic, like country ran out of money type of, or uh, ran out of paper type of inflation. Uh, if you're dealing with like 50, 70, 80% uh, even official inflation, right? Uh, what I understand is, um, I think there's a number of economies in uh, Latin America and Africa, for example, where they don't even off-ramp. It's not even about off-ramping, right? They just want to be able to hold USDT or USDC yep. as a way of transacting with one another because, gosh, it's so much better <laughs> than what you have as an alternative, right? So it just totally changes, you know, the relative value proposition. Uh, and sometimes I think, you know, for those of us that live in countries where uh, money is stable and money works, uh, the, the kind of frame of reference is pretty fundamentally different. You know, you've just reminded me, and I know we're coming up on time, so I'd love to keep going for forever, but like, unfortunately, time is a scarce commodity as well. <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> People will say to me, uh, in, where is simple cash card. So how do I want to pay cash card or crypto? And I'm crypto. Okay. What do you want? They'd be like, just what you said, USDT. And I'm like, so which network? They go, I don't have any idea what network. I don't care. I just want it quickly and, yep. and straight to my cell phone. And that's exactly what you said earlier on about scalability and throughput on networks. But people were opting to do it. Uh, they might not have been doing it on Solana necessarily, but I'm sure people mm -hmm. are. And uh, it just works. It just yeah. works. Um, and it's a way to move money across borders. You yeah. can't do with the legacy system. And it's way easier and cheaper and faster and safer. Yeah. So people do it. 
In fact, in uh, many parts of the non-Western world, people use Tron USDT because it's yeah. cheap, fast USDT. And so uh, to me, it's also quite interesting that there is a little bit of this kind of perception bifurcation between, let's you know, call it very simply, Eastern crypto and Western crypto. Eastern crypto, we think USDT is a scam uh, and uh, it's been characterized as such for a long time, right? Uh, I think somewhat unfairly, I don't know, uh, I don't have strong opinions about it, but just repeating what I, other people tell me, right? It's a little bit of this kind of like, you know, shifty eye type of reception that you'll get. Uh, and yet USDT is over three times the size, or I think roughly around three times the issuance of USDC, right? Uh, and so that's kind of an interesting, uh, that's an interesting type of concept that you have something uh, where you kind of have like these two addressable markets, if you will, um, for a very similar product. And so, you know, crypto, because it's digital, it's fungible, uh, and it's, you know, constantly living and things like that, then you actually have like these competing versions of what is unified in the traditional world. It opens up entirely sort of new dimensions of thinking about these things. Uh, whereas in the West, we all love USDC and probably, you know, don't really look at USDT in the same light. And it's just completely different perceptions. Uh, you know, uh, within the short flight of one another. Um, and, uh, yeah, and both are, both are real. So. Yeah. It's, hey, look, folks, the, the data is out there. Uh, someone named Matt Alberg, A-R-L-B-O-R-G. He, uh, you can find him on, on the bird app. Uh, he took bit refills data, <clears throat> which saw transactions in different countries and broke it down by chain. And I'm looking at the chart right now. You look at the United States, it's probably 40% on the Bitcoin ecosystem go to Europe, it's about half. You go to Asia, it's maybe 10%. Most popular chains are Tron and Binance, BNB chain. Uh, Latin America, about a third of it's on Binance pay. Africa, it's about half Binance. So yeah, absolutely. The information's out there. You just got to know where to find it. But as you say, like watching how people do this in very different markets, very different contexts, different incentive structures, uh, yeah. it's endlessly fascinating. Right. Um, and even if you just, you know, even take the crypto element out of it and look at where inter internet users actually live and just segment them by time zones, uh, I think it's something like uh, a third of internet users are uh, GMT plus eight or around GMT plus eight. Uh, and then the total percentage of internet users that are uh, within uh, within sort of comfortable uh, uh, working hours range of, for example, PST um, is 15, 20%, right? Yep. Uh, and then the percentage kind of within CET or GMT. And so it's, uh, you know, really the, the locus of, um, of the potential user bases, if we can get the scalability right, all those types of things is, is really not evenly distributed. Uh, and so uh, with all of the sort of, you know, what, the, what happens in crypto every few years is there'll be differential sort of regulatory responses to the things that are happening. Uh, and uh, in the past, it was oftentimes happening in various uh, kind of regulatory uh, um, areas in GMT plus eight. And what happened was uh, went from north to south, basically to Singapore. Now it's moving a little bit back to Hong Kong, right? Uh, and it went from no on ramps, people's crypto, crypto exchanges. Um, and so there's been like this uh, kind of uh, pursuit and then flexing type of uh, uh, like almost this kind of like amoeba type of flexibility about crypto. And I think we're going to be seeing that now again, right? I don't think it's coincidental that all of this stuff started to happen in the US and then in the UK, I guess where you are. 
uh, um, which has its own economic challenges, from what I hear. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there it does. Been, uh, a fairly warm, uh, at least if not embrace, I would say interest at least, right, uh, in uh, in seeing an opportunity. Um, and so I think that's just going to continue to exist, right, because um, it's kind of home base is really digital more than anything else. Yeah, and it, we've seen this happen before. I remember a few years ago at the New England Complex Science Institute, they had data from Twitter. So this is probably 15 mm -hmm. years ago. And they were basically like, there's two Twitters. One of them is the people who are awake on Pacific time. Um, and then there's the other part that are Western Europe and the Eastern United States. And they're totally, they don't speak to one another essentially because they're using it at completely yeah. different times. And yeah. it's the same thing here in a way. It's just a different manifestation of, of the way in which technology yeah. is adopted in different places yeah. as people have different problems they solve in different ways. Yeah. And so you can see it. You yeah. can see almost the tectonic uh, plate shifting as you just pointed out, as different jurisdictions yeah. start taking different approaches to seize the benefits and deal yeah. with the risks. Um, and so in a sense, that is kind of the, uh, it's almost the social or uh, I guess call it like usage manifestation of the very concept of user networks where validators, right? Um, can, anyone can join or leave the network at will and doesn't have to uh, necessarily interact or coordinate um, outside of the core protocol with anyone else. And they can all sort of be in parallel part of the same community, uh, yeah. or at least their own, right? So this whole sort of Byzantine fault tolerance type of thing, uh, this is a little bit like the social equivalent of, uh, equivalent of that, right? Where you have this one network that's used in so many different ways. Uh, and this is, uh, in some sense, if we put like a corporate lens on, you know, typically we expect corporate corporations, right? Which usually produce products um, to have kind of a singular focus of those products with, you know, one or maybe a couple of very clearly segmented customer bases and things like that, right? But to me, the mental model of blockchain is so fundamentally different that you actually have kind of like these parallel communities that uh, share core infrastructure, but potentially, you know, couldn't even be more different. Uh, and in that sense, it's uh, it's a pretty different thing from uh, from how we typically think about tech products, which are usually sort of the manifestation of uh, of you know, corporate entity. So, uh, so that's what I also find to be quite interesting and also quite unique about what happens in crypto, because ultimately um, this is kind of substrate for communities uh, rather than sort of being like a, a corporate type of expression, right? Ultimately, they're sort of communities at scale cities, and you know, I guess you know, back to the back to the earlier conversation about uh, uh, about uh, Poulon, right? Yeah, it's, it's a good way to put it. Mental model. If it's a distributed system and it's got emergent properties of a complex system, you you can't use the the central hierarchy mental model anymore. It totally breaks down, yeah. and you can't understand what's yeah. going on unless you update essentially the way mm -hmm. you perceive the world to work. It's just right. fundamental. Or even sort of, I, I think that the the desire for a lot of people to try to demand a higher level of consistency in use case is something that is uh, is not necessary, right? I think to demand consistency um, above like the most primitive level, um, consistency in behaviors and cultures and those types of things, um, is, this is meant to be sort of a lower level, uh, you know, technology, right? Upon which communities are built. 
and one should not expect that those communities um, are terribly similar as if products from a company would be very similar from the same company would be similar to one another. That's where I think the mental model starts to diverge pretty quickly. So yeah. all these things can Absolutely. be true, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's endlessly fascinating, but mm -hmm. unfortunately we're out of time. Lily, how can people find you on the interwebs? Uh, I am C-A-L-I-L-Y-L-I-U, C-A Lily Lou on Twitter. Um, that's probably the best place to find me. Nice one. Great. Well, with that, we're out of time. It has been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today, Lily, though. I hope everyone found today's podcast useful and informative. If you're in the US, wisdomtreeprime.com, go check it out. You can always find me on the Bird app at Benjamin Dean. And as a reminder, if anybody wants to talk about any topics in the future, or if you just want more information, use the snail mail, cryptoclarify.wisdomtree.com. Thank you for listening. It has been an absolute pleasure, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you.